It's watering time, everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, where you get your faith saturated with the things of God so that you can saturate your world with the truth of who God is. I am Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today, we are going to continue our discussion on soul care and all that it entails, because soul care is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing we can do, to take care of our souls before God. But before we do, we have a word from our sponsors. Are you looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area? If so, I highly recommend Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. She comes with years of experience and really does love people. Kathy's trustworthy, does care about her clients. I know because I'm one of them. I can say that firsthand. Kathy's my agent. She met with us and learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped us find what was right for us. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but has regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She's attentive to your style, your needs, and comes alongside you to help you discover what is best for you. I would encourage you to give her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. And tell her Travis sent you. And now let's get back to soul care. There are many different aspects to soul care. And that involves really understanding the rhythms of life. We need to understand rhythm. Balance is really garbage. There's no balance in life because our life is always changing. There are always ebbs and flows. We can't keep everything in balance. It's like holding, standing on one foot and trying to hold things in different hands because everything is moving and moving back and forth and we're trying to maintain our balance. It's a myth. Instead, we need to find a rhythm, the rhythm of life. And the rhythm of life comes at us in a variety of different ways. It might be the seasons. It might be our daily routines. It might be the different life stages in which we find ourselves. We have to find our rhythms because we have rhythm everywhere in our world. And when something gets off rhythm, it is disastrous and can get ugly pretty quick. We have rhythms everywhere in our world, not just in our music, but in our daily lives with our seasons and daily routines. I mean, think about the seasons. We have rhythms with winter, spring, summer, or fall, or our daily rhythms. What's your routine when you get up in the morning? When do you have your coffee or tea? What do you do? How do you ease into your day? Or when you go to bed at night, how do you get ready for bed? I mean, what's the order of things? We all have these things that we do, every single one of us, and we need to find our rhythm. Whenever you move to a different place, you have to establish a new routine, a new rhythm. It's so important to who we are. And when we get off rhythm, it really messes with us. It can really mess us up. I, I have a good friend who came to our area, the Chicagoland area, and stayed uh, for several months during a pass, the passing of the seasons, as inevitably happens. And it really messed with him because, you see, in Uganda, the sun comes up every day at 7 a.m., and it goes down every evening at 7 p.m. It doesn't matter the month. It doesn't matter the season. It's always that way because Uganda is right on the equator. But when he came north to where we're at, in the summer, the sun goes down around 9 p.m. And in the winter, it goes down around 4.30 p.m. And that really messed with his, his circadian rhythm and understanding how things worked. Rhythm is so important to our bodies and our lives. I, I th think about it. Take a moment and just put your two fingers on your wrist and take your pulse. I mean, when that gets off, you have like arrhythmia, and that's not good. 
We need to have our bodies in rhythm. We need to find our rhythm in life spiritually as well. And our spiritual life is often connected or really is connected to our daily life rhythms. And sometimes we have to set that rhythm. We have to put those pieces in place. And, and part of that means discovering how God, or discovering God's rhythm. And God understands rhythm. He created the seasons. He created our bodies. He knows them in and out. And part of this means understanding and implementing the concept or spiritual practice of Sabbath into our lives. This is where a little tension inevitably creeps up when we talk about Sabbath, because people start to ask questions such as, was it just for the people of Israel? What, what day is it supposed to be on? Don't Muslims observe it on Fridays and Jews on Saturdays and Christians on Sundays? Which day? Which day do we, we do this? And how, how are we supposed to go about this? Are, are, what does that mean? Does that mean we can't do anything? That we can't have fun? That we can't go places? Well, what does it really mean to Sabbath? What about all these other personnel? What about people that need to work, like medical uh, emergency medical professionals that need to be on, or policemen? What does that mean for them? Are they violating the Sabbath? Are they in trouble? on the Sabbath? I mean, we're not a theocratic society. How are, you, how, are you, how are we supposed to observe these things? And then if we do, what can we do? What can't we do? Doesn't that seem to be a little bit legalistic and counterintuitive to the point that God has for giving us freedom in him? Those are, these are just some of the questions that we inevitably face or come up whenever we're talking about the concept of Sabbath. However, I'm still an advocate for it. And I have a lot of reasons for doing so, and today I hope to really take a deep dive into the concept of Sabbathing and what it means and answer some of these questions that, we'll, that we face. The, perhaps the most well-known passage on Sabbath is found in the book of Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11. If, if you're familiar with this chapter, you know that it's the, the list that we have of the Ten Commandments. Written by Moses as he was carried along by the Spirit of God, he talks about the Sabbath day and says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." If you are in any way familiar with this concept of Sabbath and its practice among the Israelites, then you know it's a very, very serious thing. Now, of course, there are, there are secular Jews today that don't observe it. But if you were to go to Israel and you were to see observant Jews, you would see that they take this very, very seriously, as do many Christians and Muslims. If you were to go to Jerusalem, and I, and I was there several years ago, I was staying at a youth hostel. Um, and while we were there, there was this elevator and we got on the elevator and get ready to press the button when we noticed that all the buttons were already lit up. And it wasn't because someone was pranking us and just already hit every button, at least I hope not. But I learned actually later that it was because of the Sabbaths and the fact that this area had Muslims, Jews, and Christians, and they all took Sabbath very seriously. And they felt that if they pressed a button, that was considered to be a work. And therefore, it was outlawed by God. So in order to help them along and so that they didn't push a button, they had every, the elevator stop at every floor. 
And, and that seems a little bit extreme to us, but when we really get into what Exodus says or what the scriptures say about the Sabbath, we're going to see that it's not actually that far from the truth, at least, at least in the ancient world, although things have changed. Now, when we get into the Sabbath, we're going to see that it actually pointed to something much greater than just a day off. And if we are ever going to make Sabbathing or Sabbath keeping a part of our soul care rhythms and practice, then it requires us identifying the Sabbath's purpose. What was the reason for it? In order for us to understand the purpose of the Sabbath, we need to turn even further back than Exodus to the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, God, remember, God had created everything in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. We pick it up in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Did God need to rest? Of course not. He didn't need to rest. Was he tired? I mean, we get tired when we create, when we work, when we're doing stuff. At the end of the day, we're tired. We want to get some rest. We want to get a meal. Did God get tired? No, of course he didn't because he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He doesn't get tired. That's a characteristic of man. Then why did he rest? Well, he rested because not that he needed it, but he was leaving us an example because he knew that we would need it. See, we can see that the purpose of the Sabbath was, first of all, to bless our work. Now, I know we're talking about the day off, but we have to understand that that Sabbath was preceded by six days of work. And that's part of our, our creation mandate is that we're to work. Even Adam and Eve worked before the fall of man. We see that he, God wants to bless our work and set it apart, and he's honoring work. It's not to be something separate from our lives, but it's, it's part of something that God made us to do, to work. That's why in verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. God created us to work. He wants us to work. We were created to work. Notice that work was not created after the fall, but actually before it. The fall takes place in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. And that's sent the whole world into death and sorrow and sadness and sickness and suffering and everything that goes with that. I mean, sin and death entered the world through their, through their action. But here, we see that it's in Genesis 2. So this, this blessing of the Sabbath day, this work as well, those five days of, uh, or si excuse me, six days of work and that day of rest, preceded the fall. So God was blessing our work. There was no such thing as the five-day, 40-hour work week. In, in America, that's what we have. Other countries have it too, of course, and have picked it up. And the question is, where did that come from? Have you ever asked that question? Where did this modern conception of Saturday and Sunday come from? Well, in the U.S., it's actually, it's very interesting when you delve into the history. And uh, I found this article by Vitold Rachinsky. He wrote this essay called Waiting for the Weekend, and it appeared in the Atlantic Monthly Periodical in August, the August 1991 issue. And he observed that the weekend didn't become common until the 1920s. So we're in 2020 right now, which, mirrored, which meant that the weekend only appeared really... I mean, became a common in the 1920s, so about 100 years ago. And it actually started with a factory. 
The factory, the first ever factory to adopt the five-day work week was a New England spinning mill in 1908. So that goes back a little bit further. And, and they were expressly trying to accommodate certain people groups, specifically Jews and Christians. When the work week was six days long, it made it very hard for Jews to observe the Sabbath. If they took Saturday off and worked on Sunday, they risked offending the Christian majority. But what were they to do? God had commanded them to observe the Sabbath on Saturday. But if they worked on Sunday, they would anger Christians. So there was a compromise. A five-day week in which both Sunday and Saturday would be observed, and both Christians and Jews could observe their prospective Sabbaths. And at first, it was common in only three industries. The needle trade, building construction, and the printing and publishing industry, along with a few other exceptions. However, it was one of those exceptions that proved to be the most influential. It was picked up by none other than Henry Ford. Yes, the man from which we get Ford automobiles. Henry Ford picked it up, although it wasn't exactly for pure reasons. He realized that people wouldn't purchase a car if they didn't have time to use it. So he gave an extra day off so that the people could travel and use that extra day for leisure. He was a lone advocate for weekend uh, for the weekend and was routinely criticized by other major industrial players. What really made the two-day weekend permanent was actually the Great Depression of all things that happened in 1929. Shorter hours came to be thought of as a remedy for unemployment, which meant if people could work shorter hours, that meant more people could work because so many people were out of work and needed work. So just before the Great Depression, the work week had been close to 50 hours. Now imagine if you had that today, and I know that many people still work that in many different parts of the world, um, but that's how it was in the United States. That was what was expected. That was a regular work week. But because of the work sharing, it was reduced to 35 hours or less. However, in America, it was the New Deal legislation in the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 that mandated the weekly maximum work week of 40 hours, and that began in 1940. So here we are 80 years in. Once the eight-hour day became normal, the five-day week arrived, and other cultures picked that up. It is amazing to me that while we have a five-day week with a two-day weekend, we still can't find time to be with God. Ford was prescient in, in seeing Saturday as a day for leisure. It still is for many, and Sunday has become that in many ways too, which is quite sad. The Sabbath isn't meant for dubious entertainment, but for divine engagement. We're called to work and rest, and both should point people to Jesus. Our work should point other people to the Savior and the true representation of our relationship with God. If we're able to work and don't, then we're poor testimonies of the name by which we are called. Indeed, Paul goes so far to say, when he's writing in his second letter to the Thessalonians or the church at Thessalonica, he says, now such 
persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. He was addressing the fact that many people thought Jesus was coming back right away, and so they quit their jobs and were waiting. And he's saying, no, yes, Jesus is coming back right away, but you have to be working. You have to be doing, because you don't know when that's going to be. So you are to ever be ready, but while you are waiting, redeem that time and fulfill your creation mandate by doing work, because God has made you to work. And it bothered him so much that he gave them an even more stricter warning in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He says that if a person will not work, let him not eat. God really does desire that we work. But he gave us a day of rest. Why? Jesus gives us a great indication in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 through 28. He says that Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. He's saying that God had a point behind it. It was to sanctify our welfare. God cared about us. He cares about us still. It was to give us rest physically, mentally, spiritually. Even the word Sabbath, Shabbat, means to cease, desist from labor. In other words, rest. God knows that we need rest. We're not designed to be God, to go 24-7. We're human, mere mortals who need rest, sleep, time to refocus, catch our breath, get a good meal. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God established the Sabbath at creation before the fall of man and before he gave the law. So even before the fall, he knew us better than we know ourselves and desired that we rest. And when we don't rest, it really messes us up. He knows the rhythm we have. Just a couple weeks ago, we went to go see some old friends that moved about an hour and a half north of us. And they have children, and we brought our kids along so that they could see them and play with them. And we enjoyed such uh, the fellowship that we had that we stayed late. And when we left and made our way home, our kids were really tired. They made their way to bed. It was a few hours after their regular bedtime. But their body clocks are so tuned that they wake up at a certain hour no matter what time they went to bed. My kids are a little odd that way. I don't know how yours are, but that's how mine are. And when they woke up, I saw that their eyes were sunken and that they were still tired. And I was trying to get them to go back to bed, but they maintained that they weren't tired and everything was going to be fine. But I, as their father, knew that later in the day, it was going to be awful because they're going to be tired. They're going to be frustrated. They get angry easier. They, they kind of go at it at each other. They, they get more and more angry. And that's exactly what happened. Though they, they, they obeyed me by going back to bed, they didn't sleep. And so later, when it was late in the afternoon, they were a mess. Any parent knows this. We know our children better than they know themselves. And God is the ultimate parent and knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows that we need rest. Now, before I go any further, there are some connotations of the Sabbath that often confuse people when they read it. And I want to take a moment to lay them out because they have a place in giving us a greater understanding of the Sabbath and its purpose. First up, there's the Sabbath day. That's the one we just talked about, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, which was on the seventh day of the week. And that's, what, that's, that's exactly what we've been addressing. However, there was more. There was also the Sabbath year, according to Leviticus chapter 25, 1 through 6, which was the seventh year. 
the Israelites were told to farm the land for six years, but on the seventh year, they were to leave the land fallow because even the land needed rest, as we read in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1 through 7. Let me read this for us. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall sow, you shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. Now, there's a lot that's there, and I'm not going to get into all aspects of it, but it's just enough for us to see that God had, even for the land, to have rest. That he laid it out because he knew that the land even would need rest. So we have this concept of Sabbath day, Sabbath year, and then there is this heavenly Sabbath that the Bible talks about. And that's in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 through 13, which is the day when we rest for, from all of our labors for eternity. It's this concept of Sabbath that acts as a witness to our redemption. Now, this is where we're going to go into some really deep waters. John Piper, pastor and theologian, wrote about this in reference to the book of John, chapter 5, verse 16 through 17. This is after Jesus described, let me, let me just lay this out for us. This is after Jesus described himself as working on the Sabbath day. He said, I'm working. As just as his father was working. And Piper goes on to say this, because this is a really confusing passage. You might read through this and go, I have no clue what this means. But this is what Piper says, and I, I believe he really captures the essence of what God is trying to show us in this passage. Piper writes, Now consider John 5, 16 through 17. Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath and told him in John chapter 5, verse 8, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Sidebar here. Remember, we, we talked about them pressing the buttons on the elevator. That was considered a work. So carrying the mat was also considered a work. It seems a little severe and harsh to us. And we're going to see why they took this so seriously in, an, in just a few moments. But that was considered a work, even picking up your mat. This got the man in big trouble. This is Piper again. This got the man in big trouble for carrying his bed on the Sabbath. In John 5.16, John writes, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Controversial thing. To this, it says in verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Piper says, what does this mean? I think it means this. Now pay attention. When Adam fell into sin, God got up from his Sabbath rest after creation and started to work again. Not this time on creation, but redemption toward a new creation, a new humanity. My father is working until now and I am working. You do not understand what I am doing. I and my father are creating a new world, a new humanity. And when we are finished, we will celebrate with a new Sabbath. Piper again, and that work of redemption and new creation was finished decisively on the cross. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to celebrate the victory he had won and the new creation he had decisively obtained and inaugurated. 
Now he could take his seat with his father on the throne of the universe and enter his Sabbath rest. So says John Piper. It was to point, the Sabbath was to point to our redemption, to point toward the day when we wouldn't have to work for God's favor. We already have it, God's favor, through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. That's the overarching concept of Sabbath. The central part of the wheel that the spokes of all other Sabbaths reference and point back to. That's the culmination of it. And we're going to explore, explore that in just a little bit. But knowing that the depth of Sabbath, how then are we to practice it? Or, or are we even to practice it? Is it just a spiritual thing that pointed to Jesus that we don't need to do any longer? I mean, this is a great question. Some have actually abandoned the practice saying that it's no longer necessary. Perhaps, I, uh, that might be, might be so, but I think that if we're to understand the Sabbath, then it's our responsibility to to be examining the Sabbath's practice. We need to really get the full essence of it. We need to really probe down deep to zoom in. How was the Sabbath observed? What about Jesus? Did Jesus do it? Did he keep it? Well, he was an observant Jew and he, it, he did practice the Sabbath. And while he did do it as an observant Jew in his time on earth, let's go back for a moment. Let's go back even before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And let's, let's go all the way back to the very dawn of time for a moment. Because God is the sovereign God, but he's also the triune God, which means that he exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When he assumed flesh as the incarnate or as the Son of God, when he was born in the, in the womb or conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he, he did enter into earth, but he actually existed in eternity past. That's the expression that theologians use to understand the time before time actually began when God created created it. And, and, and this is pretty fascinating. I, I want to examine Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 through 3 for a moment, where it talks about how God created and God created the heavens and the earth, right? And he rested on the seventh day. And when we talk about God, we're talking about the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But who is the active agent through whom God created the world? Well, it was the pre-incarnate Son of God, the divine word. Uh, whom God created the world. Now, let me elaborate here, because I know that I'm in, in deep water, and it's, it's a little bit difficult to understand, but it's going to become clear in just a second. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, we read this, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Okay? So he's the heir of all things, meaning he's the recipient of all the honor, all the glory. He's achieved everything through the cross. But let me, let me continue on in that passage. Through whom he also created the world. Did you get that? It's, it's through Jesus that God the Father created the world. Or again in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created. The whole universe. All of the galaxies within it, right? But by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And we see then in John chapter 1 through 3, the word of God, by the way, back there, just let me go back for a second, was referring to Jesus. And in John chapter 1, 1 through 3, we read this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's all the way actually through verse 4. See, Jesus himself kept the Sabbath at the beginning of creation, meaning that when God rested after creating the heavens and the earth, that was Jesus. And while he was on earth, he also observed the Sabbath, although he was accused of breaking it by his enemies. They didn't like him. They were jealous. They, were, they, they really didn't like what he was doing, so they were trying to find a way to bring him down. And they accused him of breaking the Sabbath because he was teaching and he was healing work. However, it, it's Jesus doing that. We see something very, very, very important, that works of necessity were permitted And if you look at Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 26, you can see that as were works of mercy. Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, in works of piety, devotion, love. That's in Matthew chapter 12, verse 5 through 7. So our Lord and Savior, Jesus, King Jesus, observed the Sabbath. While many scholars think that the Sabbath was established on Sinai, which is when the law was given to Moses, remember that, with the Ten Commandments, that's actually not true, that it directly precedes it. The Sabbath was practiced before the law was even given. Some people would say, and and here's what I mean by that, oh, it was just part of the law and we're no longer under law, we're under grace. That's true, and we're going to examine that in a second. But when you go back, you actually see that it was part of the created order. Consider Exodus chapter 16, verse 23. God had given the Israelites manna from heaven. If you remember that, they're in the wilderness, and God is supernaturally taking care of them by giving their food day in and day out. And they got manna from heaven. Now, there were two restrictions with this manna. Number one, they were only to get what they needed for that day. If they kept it longer than that day, it would they'd wake up in the morning, and it would stink really bad, and it would have maggots in it. So they were only to have as much as they needed for that day and not try to really build up a a repository of it. You know, they weren't to do that. And the other restriction was that on the sixth day, they were actually to gather, they, they had to change gears a bit. They actually had to get enough for two days. And that's, that's, that's a little bit difficult to get used to. Like I can't have it at all. I mean, only I can't have any more than I need for five days. Then on the sixth day, I get twice as much as I need. And then I'm not supposed to come at at all out on the Sabbath day. And we pick it up in Exodus chapter 16, verse 22 through 30. And it says on the sixth day, they gathered, gathered twice as much as usual, four quarts for each person instead of two. Then all the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation. Like, why are we having to do this? Okay, can you help us out? We don't understand because this is a total, complete shift than what you already just told us. We're not supposed to do it for five days. Now, on this day, you're telling us to keep it, I mean, to to keep it overnight, yes, but even get twice as much as we regularly would get. And then Moses says in verse 23, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. So bake or boil it as much as you want today and set aside what is left tomorrow. They're like, okay, we got it. So they set some aside until morning, just as Moses commanded. And, And in the morning, the leftover food was wholesome and good. It wasn't stinky. It didn't have maggots. It didn't smell. And Moses said, eat this food today, for today is a Sabbath day dedicated to the Lord. There will be no food on the ground today. You may gather the food for six days, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground that day. Some of the people, though, in verse 27, they went out anyway. They didn't trust. They didn't have faith. And they found no food. The Lord asked Moses, 
How long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. This is why he gives you a two-day supply on the seventh day, so there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out to pick up food on the seventh day. So the people did not gather any food on the seventh day. That's crazy. I mean, that's that's absolutely really just amazing when you really get into that. And and by the way, that's the inspiration that Jesus has when he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread to get what we need for that day. It's an intentional setting aside, desisting in order to show and acknowledge that God is our provider and our protector. And we can see then that the, Sab- the Sabbath was actually established before Sinai. And matter of fact, when we get into it, when we look at that first word of our passage for today in Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, he says, remember the Sabbath day. In other words, he's saying, remember, hey, remember that, remember that back that you heard of, remember the Sabbath that was established at creation, remember that, remember, remember, reflect, recall. And we could see from there that God is calling them to remember something he'd already established, While it had been given to man, there was much more. It was given to the nation of Israel as well. In other words, it was given to man generally, to mankind. But specifically, it was really readdressed and reorientated to be to the people of Israel. And it was to be practiced by Israel as a sign of their binding love relationship with God. That God set his affection on this one people group so that they might display what it meant to have a relationship with God. And they might be a light to the nations. And and we pick this up in Exodus chapter 31 verse 12 through 17. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath for this is a sign between me and you throughout generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you, that make you holy, that set you apart. It's, it's to be a sign. It's, it's a sermon to yourself. And and again, in Exodus chapter, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And he repeats it in verse 20 of the same passage. And keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. It was to show that they were God's special people. They were, in essence, by observing it, preaching a sermon to their own souls, that they were God's people. It's a testimony to other people that we live according to a different standard and rhythm than the world gives. The the world has one beat that it's living by, and we're trying to live to God's beat, God's song. The rhythms had different accents and tempos than the world, and that meant it had its own built-in limitations. It had its own rest and rhythms and accents. And it had some penalties that went with us. This is why I I want us to see this because it really shows just the the, the serious nature of it. And going back to when I was in Uganda, I mean, I was in Uganda a few years ago, and we had the opportunity to go to many different villages. Now, each village or each tribe had their own specific tribal dance, and I would want to participate in that dance. It was not pretty, but it was fun. And I, I really, cause I really wanted to get to know them and experience their culture. Cause that's not something that's, that's part of my own culture. And every village had their own like drum beat, their own song and their own dance. For the Israelites, their specific life beats, their song 
involved no working on the Sabbath. That was part of the rhythm. That was part of their, their in essence, kind of tribal or national song. These are part of the, the things that would, that would really give the accents and the beats and help them find their rhythm. And so they, they weren't to work on the Sabbath. And that rhythm was for everybody in the household to follow. Kids couldn't work, employees, if you owned a business, they were to have the day off, even your work animals, which meant no farming, and those who were sojourners, even the foreigners, people that were coming to visit or passing through, they they needed to observe this as well. You weren't even permitted to kindle a fire, which meant no cooking, uh, according to Exodus 35.3. Food had to be prepped and ready ahead of time. That meant that the woman of the house, and in that culture, the women were traditionally the ones preparing the food. Even they had the day off. I've seen a lot of Christians in the modern West that really are seeking to Sabbath, is that the mom doesn't get that day off. Well, here he's saying, hey, prep that ahead of time and be ready to eat, and you don't have to cook and do a work. And remember, work isn't just going to a job where you get a paycheck. This is working around and doing those things uh, like cooking and feeding everybody, too. I mean, it's work. And you weren't permitted to even buy anything. It wasn't just about cooking. You weren't permitted to buy anything. So no shopping, no running to the mall or store. They had to plan ahead. And we get a really good picture of this and how this played out in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31. When the Tyrians, which are people from the city of Tyre, and that's in modern day Lebanon, were actually living in Jerusalem right after they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is trying to really lead the people back to God and show what it means to have a relationship with God. But the Tyrians were actually showing up at the city wall of Jerusalem selling their goods. That's where they would have it. They would bring, in essence, like their carts and they would have all their wares displayed and people would go out and they would purchase and barter and go back and forth and tell stories. I mean, that's the kind of the picture that we have. But Nehemiah tells the people, no, 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 no. As a matter of fact, before that even happens, he kind of sets it up and lays it out for them. He says, uh, or we read in, in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year. Okay. They were going to do the Sabbath year there and the exaction of every debt. Saying, so in essence, saying not to do it is one thing. He was saying, we're not going to do this, but actually enforcing it is something altogether different. If you're a parent, you can say, we're not going to do this, or kids, you're not going to do this, but then the kid does it, and then you got to bring down the hammer. I mean, you got to bring down the law. And so that's what we have happen, is that the Tyrians show up, they start putting out their wares, and and Nehemiah is frustrated. I mean, these people were going through their daily rhythms. They were living according to the rhythm of the world, marching to a different beat. They were doing their own thing, trying to make a living, trying to beat the competition, just like the world. And that included using the Sabbath to do some shopping and business. But Nehemiah reacts in Nehemiah 13, 15 through 21, and I'm going to read this passage for us. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. That would be a work. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. Again, animals weren't allowed to work. And also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. They're bringing in the harvest. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also, again, people of Tyre, modern-day Lebanon, who lived in the city, Uh, Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. They were getting fresh fish. They were catching it, and fresh fish doesn't last, especially if you don't have refrigeration and ice, so they need to sell their products and move it quick. 
But it says here in verse 17 of Nehemiah chapter 13, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Didn't the city get destroyed because of this? Because we failed to honor and set God apart and honor him as God by observing his Sabbaths? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark, the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut because the city would be surrounded with walls. And Nehemiah helped them rebuild those walls and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates. Again, works of necessity, because again, these, these guys are being stationed at the gate that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Think about police, okay? So he's saying here that these are works of necessity. We need to be able to do this in order to protect all of the greater people. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Again, works of necessity, even pastors working, okay? That's what's going on. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So Nehemiah, he cared about God more than he cared about the opinions of men and recognized that honoring God is not always easy or popular or even easy to enforce. He wanted revival, and that required making unpopular restrictions, and that helped to lead to it. The limitations were tough and, and may perhaps feel to us a bit restrictive, and that seems tough for us today, but the penalties were far worse. This is why they took it so serious, okay? Some of you might be wondering, okay, I still don't get it. Why, why, why so serious? Why, what's the big deal here? I mean, we get really a picture of this in Exodus 31.15, right? Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. There it is, right there. Put to death. Any work on the Sabbath day to be put to death. That's why Nehemiah is like, hey, 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 we need to do this. We need to go back. We need to, to re-show how that God is our God. And then you get a tangible illustration in Numbers chapter 15, verse 32 through 36. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they're wandering in the wilderness, okay? So this, again, we're going back to the wilderness when the man is coming down. They found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. He was going to make a fire. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death and all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. That seems a little severe to us, no? I mean, again, this is why we can see that the Jews are serious about not even pressing a button on an elevator. At first glance, to our modern sensibilities, it seems harsh. Until, that is, we take a deeper dive. There is a deeper meaning that we can see when we really probe its depths. Because the man working on that Sabbath, picking up sticks, is actually a symbol of someone trying to work their way to God. Working on the Sabbath meant that God wasn't needed or that one could disregard God's word and have salvation apart from him. This is how serious it is to God. 
That leaves us the question, how are we as Christians to understand the Sabbath? That, that, that's where it comes back to, right? Many of us say, well, we're no longer under law. I get the creation thing, but there's still the law that says that, um, that Jesus abolished the law. Then we don't have to do that any longer. And that's where it means understanding the Sabbath's perfection. Now, we're, we're going into a whole new area, a whole new chapter here. Perfection, what does that mean? I mean, perfection point means culmination, apex, the realization of what it means. Remember, I said the Sabbath ultimately points to a heavenly rest. Remember when we just talked about that? And that had been achieved by Christ. Here's what I mean. The law had a requirement, and one of those requirements was to observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There were a lot of laws. Jesus did that. He fulfilled everything about the law. The law was meant to show us that we couldn't do it. It was to lead us to the point of realizing three things. This is the point of the law. Number one, how holy God is. He is set apart. He is distinctly different than us. Number two, shows us how sinful we are. We can't keep it. No matter how hard we try, we can't keep it. We try. We try to live by it. We try to do it. And we can't keep it. Thirdly, it was to show us how fantastic and awesome Jesus is. God alone is holy. And his holiness demands perfection. Something we are not as sinful creatures, nor ever could be in our natural state. His holiness demands that his law be fulfilled. We can't do it. We fall short. We miss it. That's where Jesus comes in. He did all that the law required. And by faith in him, we participate in that. As Paul said when he wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It's like the movies. Whenever you see a person who is trying to steal precious art from a museum and, and they're trying to figure out how to get this precious art and they get into the museum and they see that there are these like lasers that are moving back and forth and it's guarding this piece that they can't get to. And it's like every time someone tries to go through it, the laser goes off, right? Well, this is where Jesus comes in. He's the only one in all of time that didn't trip any lasers, he made it through, and by faith in him, we make it through too. We benefit from what he accomplished. And when it comes to Sabbath observance, we can see that, the, that Jesus actually perfected the Sabbath by fulfilling the righteous requirements, and that he's the full symbol of it. I mean, he fulfilled these righteous requirements of the law, which the Sabbath was one of them. Or Look at Matthew 5, 17 for a moment, or listen in. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So you get that? He didn't come to just get rid of it. He came to fulfill the purpose that they were, they had. That was to show people again how awesome God is. And the only way to get to God is through Jesus, who is provided for our redemption. Meaning we can't work our way to God. We can only place our faith in the work that the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. By Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, and his sitting down at the right hand of God the Father, that work is done. It's finished. Meaning he it, it is completed. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, it was showing that God's righteous requirement was met in him. And now we are saved from the wrath of God, not by earning it, but by grace, God's favor. He gives us his favor. For by grace, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved, and this not your own doing. You couldn't earn it. It is the gift of God, not a result of any works that you have done, so that no one can boast in the sight of God. In other words, it's Jesus that has done it from beginning to end. There's no way that we as sinful people can boast that we accomplish something apart from God. 
So we're not saved by works because Jesus saved us from the righteous requirements of the law by becoming sin for us. Jesus perfected the Sabbath by achieving our redemption from sin. We have been freed from our sin because of Jesus' death and because of the requirements of the law were met in him. We can now have the righteousness that Jesus earned or procured on the cross. We've been freed. We were once slaves to sin. We were stuck. We were doomed. But by Jesus' death, the chains have been broken. It's as Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. These many idols, or these idols in our hearts and our lives that we couldn't stop. We couldn't, we, we always gave our hearts to them, even if it was ourselves. It could be an ideal, could be an object, could be anything. But he says in verse 9, by now, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Then he illustrates this, and he's talking to the Jews here. Uh, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I have, may have labored over you in vain. Now, that's a little bit confusing when we're talking about Sabbath. But see, they were looking at the observance of Sabbath and all of these other holy days as a means of righteousness in the sight of God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you misunderstand the point of them. The point of them was to lead you to Jesus and show Jesus. But you think by meticulously keeping them that you got favor in the sight of God. No, that's not it. You, you don't get it yet. You're not understanding. People used to think that if they were, t that freedom came by meticulously keeping all of God's laws, but we couldn't do it. It was a tremendous and horrific burden. The only way really is through Jesus. That's why we don't observe days and months and years thinking it is going to make God happy with us. And that includes the Sabbath day. We're not commanded to observe it as a means of righteousness, which means that we don't have to do it as a way of getting God's favor. No, that's not it. It, if that were the case, then we've already failed because we're actually observing it on the wrong day. You know, the Sabbath originally was on Saturday. That's the Jewish Sabbath. And people have different opinions on, was it between sunset and, and sunset or sunrise and sunrise? But either way, no matter which way we take it, we, I mean, we, we see that the Sabbath actually started on, was the first day of the week. That's according to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 2, which we actually now call the Lord's Day. And that's in Revelation 1, 10. You know, New Testament believers didn't observe the, Sat the Saturday Sabbath. Jewish believers did, but they also celebrated Sunday, the Lord's Day. So in many ways, they kind of precipitated the modern day weekend. They, they actually kind of set that up because Jewish believers were in the habit of doing it on Saturday. But these new Gentiles believers were doing it on Sunday because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And it became common practice as time went on that Sunday then replaced Saturday as the Sabbath. However, it had become a problem because... As the, the church had, I mean, they had these disagreements and it became an aspect of spiritual one-upmanship as, uh, as these things inevitably do. Some say, oh no, we do it on the right day. Others are saying, no, 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 we do it on the right day. It become a problem in a church like Colossae. Some were observing one day while others were observing all kinds of Jewish holidays. Others weren't. I mean, it wasn't part of their cultural heritage and, and it became a spiritual one-upmanship, depending on the day, and even it went so far as to what they were eating and what they were drinking, thinking that they were super spiritual for doing one practice or another. 
while others were so frustrated that that group was engaging or not engaging in their specific uh, practice of choice or observance of choice or, or whatever it might be, Paul got so frustrated that he wrote to the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath or whatever day that you're observing. These are all a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the point of it all is Jesus. It's to point us back to him. He reminded them that all of the ceremonies, rituals, and practices, and sacrifices pointed to Jesus. They were shadows, and they all find their fulfillment in him. Therefore, we see it's all about him and the freedom he gives us, as Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 14, verse 5 through 6. One person esteems one day is better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He freed us from the law by fulfilling the law and dying in our place, and then rose again where he ascended into heaven, where he sat down, showing that it was finished. It was done. Showing that salvation was finished. When I was a kid, I grew up in a single-parent household until I was in my teens. My father had died when I was a child, and my siblings were older than me, so they were out of the house, and it was just me and my mom. And she would make dinner, and then we would eat dinner, and then it would be over, and the dishes would be done, and then we'd sit down, and I, like a teenager, would get hungry and say, Mom, would you make me something? And she would say, the kitchen's closed. It's done for the night. It's finished. And so when Jesus sits down, he's saying, it's done. It's closed. It's finished. I've accomplished it. That's pretty incredible. He rested from his works and is now giving us the spiritual rest to which the Sabbath originally pointed. See, he sat down at the right hand of God to show that he was finished. He's not continually paying for sins over and over again. We see that sometimes in certain Christian art or artifacts that they have Christ on the cross. No, he's not perpetually paying for sins. He did it once and for all. His death was so great, so sufficient to pay for our sins, past, present, and future. And now he offers to give us the spiritual rest to which the Sabbath originally pointed to. That was the point of it. That was, I mean, he's the middle part of this whole deal, that middle part of the, of the wheel. All the spokes go back to point to him. That's why he said in John chapter 5, verse 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. He was working to bring about man's redemption. And on the cross, when he said those sweet words, It is finished, his death showed that man's redemption was done. He died, and the death he died, he died once and for all. He rose from the dead three days later and lived 40 days on the earth, and then he ascended into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of God. From that position, he offers his rest to us through faith in him. This is what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 through 11 is talking about. Now, this is a really deep passage. This is not one that you just take everything. This is a fire hose, okay? That's what it's like drinking from this passage. Let me read it for us, okay? Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In other words, they were, they were just working. They were going through the motions. For we who have believed, we have faith, we enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
God is saying, I am angry, and those who are trying to working don't get what I have done and have marginalized what I have offered to them. Therefore, they're not going to enter the rest that I give them. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, because God is omnipotent, I mean, he sees all things at one time, and, in, and in, for him, it's all been ordained since the foundation of the world. Verse 4, for he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. They didn't obey the truth of what they heard. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words of what of already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For who have who has excuse me, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall short by the same sort of disobedience. There is so much there to unpack. We're not going to get all of it. But the point in all of this is that this, there are a couple of things I want us to take away. First of all, this true abiding and eternal rest that the Sabbath points to has been made available to us through Jesus right now. But the fullest expression of it, the completion of that rest that is available and will abide in us in, in eternity with him won't be until he comes again or till we step into eternity at, eternity at our death. In other words, it's been inaugurated, but it's not been consummated. That means that there is time now, today, to enter that rest. It's available to you right now, this peace, this ceasing from trying to strive to make your own identity, to achieve favor in the sight of God. You will never be able to do it. This world says you can be whatever you want to be, that you can, you can achieve all, do all, you know, carpe diem, seize the day, grab it by the horns, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. One of the things that COVID has showed us is that we're not in charge. We make our plans, we, we try to set it out, and before a lot of business gurus were saying, oh, make your one-year plan, your six-year plan, I mean, how do you lay that out? Today, we're saying six months, because we don't know what is going to happen. And it showed us that we are frail, that we are human, and that we need a power beyond ourselves to define our identity. And we can't work our way or make our identity so much that we have peace with God. That's what we're all searching for, is it not? Peace? And that peace was actually achieved by Christ. And we don't earn it, we receive it. And, and while we have it, we can have it now through Christ, the fullest expression of it won't happen until we step into eternity to be with Jesus forever and ever, and we are freed from the very presence of sin. You see, Jesus' death freed us from the penalty of sin. We receive the Spirit of God to help us be freed from the power of sin, but we won't be freed from the very presence of it completely until we step into eternity. And right now, we're in this time between his first and his second coming. He came to show us how he took God's wrath upon himself and that we can escape God's wrath by appropriating Jesus' death as our own. That's why Paul could say so confidently to the Galatians in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We were crucified with Christ by faith. 
And the life we now live or now have is actually Christ. When God sees us, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus, his son, because I received him as the Lord and savior of my life. I was united to him by faith. And so are you. If you place your faith in him, no matter what you have done, no matter where you've gone, no matter how you've tried to build your identity, you abandon that and you receive what he has done and built for you. You don't earn this identity. You receive it. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. That was the wrath due you. But we, we escaped that wrath by entering into Christ, and he received it. He was the protector. And it's as if the wrath of God came upon him, and he shielded us from it, but he took it all upon himself. It is through Jesus that we are delivered from God's wrath, as we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And again, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us. He gives us rest. We have to cease our striving. And, and what we give to him now is simply a gift to him. We want to honor him. We want to show our love to him. And now, in this time between these two comings, we have opportunity to enter that rest, meaning that meaning that you have that opportunity. For those who already have trusted Christ, they've already entered into that rest. Have you? Have you entered that rest? It comes by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Don't try and put it off. As we read in Hebrews today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If God is speaking to you right now, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't put it off. One of the greatest moments or stories that I've ever heard was about my dad. My father worked as a diesel mechanic, worked on tractors. He was a tractor puller, but he was also a mechanic. And it was the fumes that eventually killed him. But he would have these men come into his shop where he was working and working on tractors, and they would share Jesus with him. And he would rejected or just give them kind of a token listening. And then one day they came back in and he came up to them and said, I know exactly what you've been talking about. I received Jesus in my shower last night. What I want us to hear from that is this. You can receive Jesus right now. If you haven't, if you stumbled on this podcast, it's not stumbling. God in his providence has brought you to it that you need to stop wherever you are, whether you're running, whether you're walking, if you're washing dishes, if you're watching whatever you're doing, if you're doing laundry, stop. If you're even in your shower and you're listening on a speaker, stop. Get on your knees and say to God, Lord, I know that you are God. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I receive him as Lord and Savior of my life, and I claim that promise that if I confess that you were, you were Lord, and I believe it in my heart, and I do, then I enter into eternal life. So, Lord, I receive you now as Lord and Savior of my life, and I thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. It's simple to say the words, but you must mean them.
Just saying words without having the heart connected to it means nothing. Do you really mean that in your heart? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. We can only enter this by faith. Don't wait. Don't harden your heart. Don't stop your ears up and go on to something else. Turn to him by repentance and faith. Repentance is simply a description of what going back to God looks like. It means abandoning the things that are not pleasing to him. Today, we've learned about this concept or spiritual truth of Sabbath keeping. And this Sabbath keeping actually shows us the greater reality of who God is. It means finding rhythm and rest in God. It involves understanding that the ultimate purpose of the Sabbath is to point us to the ultimate rest that is found in the salvation Jesus has purchased and made available to all who will receive it by faith and manifest it in obedience, doing what his word, in other words, says. And while we may seek to observe the Sabbath, we don't do it because we get points on the side of God. No. But because we want to honor God, to get in rhythm with him, because he knows us, and to know God more. We Sabbath to show the world and our souls that he is God, and that he knows us better than we know ourselves. It is for our benefit to take a day to cease, to stop, to preach to our souls with 24 hours that he is the Christ, the one true Savior of the world. And in doing so, we finally discover what has been eluding us for so long, peace, rest, and joy. Peace that comes from putting God in his proper place in our hearts and displayed in the day of ceasing and resting. As we talk about Sabbath, our need for refocus and rhythm, I want to let you know about a resource that can help you during this often crazy busy season. My ministry colleague, Kevin O'Brien, has written an Advent devotional called Devotions for Advent 2020, A Light in the Darkness. Traditionally, Advent is a time for us to step back and prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. Kevin's book is set up to help you do just that. Over the four weeks of Advent, it focuses on hope, preparation, joy, and love so that we can focus more clearly on Jesus. Each reading starts with scripture and short meditation, which connects the reality of Jesus to our lives in the here and now. I think that it will help you this season. It's available on Amazon right now. Just search Devotions Advent 2020 Kevin O'Brien. That's Kevin O'Brien with an E. That's it for today. Join us next week as we continue our deep dive into soul care. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and be sure to throw us a like online. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via our Facebook page or website, apolloswatered.org. And remember, we saturate your faith so that you can saturate your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Oh, no.